So this morning, Genesis chapter 1, we began two weeks ago with our introduction to the book of Genesis. Today we're going to look at the first half of the chapter, or the first three days of creation. So we are going to read chapter 1, beginning in verse 1, and reading down to verse 13, the end of the third day. So let's honor God's word as we read it together. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was on the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. Then God said, let there be light, and there was light. And God saw the light that it was good, and God divided the light from the darkness. God called the day, excuse me, called the light day, and the darkness he called night. So the evening and the morning were the first day. Then God said, let there be a firmament in the midst of the waters, and let it divide the waters from the waters. Thus God made the firmament and divided the waters which were under the firmament from the waters which were above the firmament, and it was so. And God called the firmament heaven, so the evening and the morning were the second day. Then God said, let the waters under the heavens be gathered together into one place, and let the dry land appear, and it was so. And God called the dry land earth, and gathering together of the waters, he called seas. And God saw that it was good. Then God said, let the earth bring forth grass, the herb that yields seed, and the fruit tree that yields fruit according to its kind, whose seed is in itself on the earth, and it was so. And the earth brought forth grass, the herb that yields seed according to its kind, and the tree that yields fruit, whose seed is in itself according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. So the evening and the morning were the third day. Lord, would you please add to the reading of your word a blessing for us as the hearers. And as we read and study it together this morning, would you illumine the understanding of our hearts and help us to realize, God, how amazing and how wonderful you are. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, the book of Genesis is so hard to get past chapter one because there are so many amazing things going on here in this chapter. Now, if you know anything about the Jewish calendar, it is different from the, uh, the calendar that we follow. And actually, this year on the Jewish calendar is 5780. Of course, for us, it's 2020. Why the difference? Well, the, number, the year number on the Jewish calendar represents the number of years since creation, according to the Hebrew understanding. And it's been calculated by adding up the ages of people in the Bible back to the time of creation. And so the Jews have determined, probably not too far off, that the year is 5780 or 5,780 years since Genesis 1-1 happened. And so it's important for us to know these things because it sort of helps us understand to me the legitimacy of what's happening in the scriptures. 
Another interesting thing is that our, uh, the Jews do not generally use the words AD and BC to refer to the years on the civil calendar because AD, as you know, means the year of our Lord, Anno Domini, and we do not believe this is them speaking on uh, this topic, and we do not believe Jesus is the Lord. And so they don't refer to the years as AD and BC. Uh, they use the term CE, common or Christian era, or BCE, before the common era, which are commonly used by Jewish scholars today. So the year is 5780 on the Jewish calendar, it's 2020 on our calendar, and of course, they uh, do not believe that Jesus is the Lord. The, even to this very day, their eyes are veiled according to what Paul said to us in First and Second Corinthians. Genesis is important to us in the New Testament because there are at least 165 passages in the New Testament that either directly or indirectly quote the book of Genesis in it, referring back to the five books of the Pentateuch or the Torah, and in particular the book of Genesis as the law as being valid. And even Jesus himself spoke a number of times of the book of the law or the book of Moses. And in John chapter five, verses 46 and 47, Jesus spoke of the importance of believing what Moses wrote. And he said, for if you believed Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote about me. But if you do not believe his writings, how will you believe my words? So we can't truthfully, honestly say that we believe in the veracity of the scriptures unless we accept the book of Genesis and indeed the first five books of, of the Bible as being a part of the canon of scripture. So it's important for us to understand that. And in what Jesus said, Jesus said that Moses spoke about him. So in those first five books of the Bible, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, Jesus is saying those books are speaking about me. So, so with that in mind, the next time you read through any of those books, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, look for Jesus because he said that he is in there. Martin Luther wrote on this topic, I beg and faithfully warn every pious Christian not to stumble at the simplicity of the language and the stories that will often meet him there in Genesis. He should not doubt that, however simple these may seem, that they are very words, works, judgments, and deeds of the high majesty, power, and wisdom of God. Just one example of someone we consider important in Christian history speaking highly of the book of Genesis. And one more thing just to sort of emphasize the importance. You may remember in Luke chapter 24 that on the day that Jesus was resurrected, he met two disciples walking on the road to Emmaus, a, a little village about seven miles outside of Jerusalem. And as Jesus met them, and it says in that passage of scripture in Luke 24 that their eyes were veiled, that they, could, they did not recognize that it was Jesus. As they were walking along, Jesus met them and he said, why are you so sad? And they began to proclaim, uh, are you the only one around here who's not aware of what's happening? 
they were sad because their Lord had been crucified but not resurrected according to their understanding. And so as they're walking along all sullen and downtrodden, Jesus the Lord comes and he meets them. And here's what Luke 24, 27 says, and beginning at Moses and all the prophets, Jesus expounded to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. So once again, pointing back to Moses and saying, uh, Moses contains a lot of information about me. And so Jesus used those very scriptures to point to himself. And then a little further in that same passage, Luke 24, 44, Jesus said to them, these are the words which I spoke to you while I was still with you, that all things must be fulfilled which were written in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms concerning me. Jesus again emphasizing the importance of the writings of Moses. And so we come to verse 1 this morning. Genesis 1.1, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. We considered this two weeks ago and we only did that first verse. But as we come back to it this, this morning, just to remind you that the term used for God here is the term, the Hebrew term Elohim, which is a plural intensive singular and as we talked about this a couple of weeks ago, we mentioned the fact that this is a reference to the Trinity and a plural intensive in Hebrew means definitely more than two. And in this particular case, referring to God himself, it refers to the Trinity. It's a veiled reference to the Trinity. Here in chapter one of Genesis, this is used 32 times just in this one chapter, which tells us how important it is for us to understand as we read Genesis one, and we keep seeing the term or the name God, God, God all 32 times in this chapter, that it's referencing the very Trinity of God, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. And I always find it helpful when I learn these kinds of things to go and circle all those times that God is used and maybe make a note somewhere and write, just write it out, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, so that as you read it, that you don't just kind of gloss over it and go, God, but you're thinking the fullness of the Godhead as you read this chapter. Another important thing to note, and, and when, we ever, when we see these kinds of things, like how many times a word is used, it emphasizes to us the importance of a theme or the importance of the significance behind the word. So more than 2,600 times in the Old Testament, this name is used of God. And, and keep in mind, there are a number of different names for God that he uses of himself. But this is of, of particular significance that he refers to himself in this plural intensive singular, meaning the fullness of the Godhead, 2,600 times or more in the Old Testament. So it indicates to us the plural fullness of God's character, his nature, and his power. Now something I want to remind us of this morning is that God is always the initiator. And we as men, men and women, we are the responder to what God has done. Now as you read Genesis 1, I want you to note all the times that God did something. That God said that God created, that God formed. And understand that even going back to before creation when there was only God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. 
And then on the day that he decided to speak into existence, as it says here, the, uh, the beginning, the heavens and the earth, that as God did that, as he spoke on that first day, and by his word he created the heavens and the earth, that God is the one who has to take the initiative because God created. You see, God created everything. We're going to get through just the first three days and it was on day six that God created man. But as we walk through this, we're going to see that God putting man at the, the end or the, the, the backside of that creative process, we're going to see a wonderful picture develop that God created uh, the world because it was his good pleasure. And he set everything in order because God is a God of order. But when he comes to man, when he comes to us, as we now stand there at the end of that creative process and we look back at all that God has done, I hope that you will be overwhelmed as I am at what God has done for us. What God has created for us, and not exclusively for us, he did it for himself, of course, for his glory. But we are the benefactors of God's creative process. Everything that God has done includes man in that process. So God is always the initiator and we as men are the responders. God made the first move and we are told in multiple ways throughout the scriptures, God is the beginning and the end. He is the alpha and the omega, the first and the last, Jesus says. And as we think about this amazing verse here, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth, I've put here just a picture of our Milky Way galaxy, and there's many, many pictures of this out for you to go see out on the internet. But as we think about that here, and this is just a focus on our galaxy. We're not even looking, you know, there's no way to look at all the galaxies that span the universe. And yet we are told in the scriptures that God himself spans the universe with his hand, with one hand span of God. He holds the entire universe in it and we're just looking at a little tiny section that we live in. It's interesting, I saw as I was looking at various pictures that I might use, I found one that one of the astronomers had put an arrow on planet Earth and he says, you are here. And when you see it on a picture like this, and just imagine any one of these little uh, points of light out just a little ways from the sun. And just thinking, this is where we live, just on that, that little dot, that little speck. And this is just our galaxy, our, our universe, if you will. A typical galaxy contains billions of individual stars and our galaxy alone, the Milky Way, which you see here, contains 200 billion stars. I'm sure they didn't count that. I'm sure that's an estimate. Our galaxy is shaped like a giant spiral rotating in space with arms reaching out like a pinwheel. And our sun is one star on one arm of the pinwheel. It would take 250 million years for the pinwheel to make one full rotation. But this is only our galaxy. There are many other galaxies with many other shapes, including spirals, spherical clusters, and flat pancakes. The average distance between one galaxy and another is about 20 million trillion miles. 
Our closest galaxy is the Andromeda galaxy, about 12 million trillion miles away. And for every patch of sky the size of the moon, this is from our vantage point looking up, if you could look very deep, you would see about a million galaxies. But God did all of this by himself, and he is the one who said in Isaiah 48:13, Indeed, my hand has laid the foundation of the earth. My right hand has stretched out the heavens. When I call to them, they stand up together. This is God saying, when I speak, basically they stand at attention and listen to me. God created Inherent in the idea of God is that he is an intelligent designer. Only an intelligent designer could create a just right universe, not chance, not chaos. Our universe is a just right universe. According to Hugh Ross in his book, The Fingerprint of God, and I quote, the universe has a just right gravitational force. If it were larger, the stars would be too hot and would burn up too quickly and too unevenly to support life. If it were smaller, the stars would remain so cool, nuclear fusion would never ignite and there would be no heat or light. Number two, the universe has a just right speed of light. If it were larger, stars would send out too much light and if it were smaller, stars would not send out enough light. Number three, the universe has a just right average distance between the stars. If it were larger, the heavy, the heavy element density would be too thin for rocky planets to form, and there would be only gaseous planets. And if it were smaller, planetary orbits would become destabilized because of the gravitational pull from other stars. Number four, the universe has a just right polarity of the water molecule. If it were greater, the heat of fusion and vaporization would be too great for life to exist. And if it were smaller, the heat of fusion and vaporization would be too small for life's existence. Liquid water would become too inferior a solvent for life chemistry to proceed. Ice would not float, leading to a runaway freeze-up we could conclude that there is no chance that such a universe could create itself apart from an intelligent designer. Now something interesting about us, we as men cannot quote create in the sense of the term that's used here. The word that's used here is bara and it means to create out of nothing. And the phrase would be ex nihilo, meaning to take nothing and create something. So we as men do not have the capability to create in the sense that God can, or certainly in the way that it's spoken of when we read that God created. We can only fashion or form things out of existing materials. The closest we come to creating is reproducing ourselves sexually or biologically. This is perhaps one reason why Satan wants to pervert and destroy God's plan and standard for sexuality. It is deeply connected to our being made in the image of God. And if you think about that, and just allow, just allow yourself to meditate on that for a bit, really that's the only way God has given that in a sense we can create. Now when you think about the act in marriage 
and marriage is defined, as we'll, we'll uh, learn next week and the week after, marriage is defined biblically as being between one man and one woman, one genetic male and one genetic female. That for Satan to want to corrupt and to pervert and to mar something that God gave man as a, a gift, as a, as a picture of what God is allowing us to do in the sense that God did, that he's giving us this ability to create, and of course we refer to having children as procreation. Think about that. God gave us that ability that in a sense, in a small way, we can create, but we can only recreate ourselves as we produce our offspring. God has given that so that we might honor him. So as we think here about this whole thing, the earth was without form and void. So God created out of nothing, verse two, and darkness was on the face of the deep and the spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. So in the very beginning, uh, God himself, as, as he was speaking into existence uh, uh, from a formless nothingness universe, and he was creating. It says uh, the, uh, the darkness was on the face of the deep as God was speaking the world into existence and the spirit of God was hovering over the face of the water. So even in the very beginning, God had sent his spirit, his Holy Spirit, as it says to hover over the waters. And the idea is, if you've ever seen a bird hovering over something, um, you'll get the idea, such as a bird uh, stopping and just hovering in place, like a mother might stop and hover over the nest of her birds. Or if you've ever seen a hummingbird, a lot of us have those little hummingbird feeders, and you stare out your window and you watch it, that bird, and you can see its wings flapping you know, thousands of times and during the little span of time that you're watching it, and it's hovering perfectly still. And that idea is the idea behind this phrase, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. Isaiah 40 again, who has measured the waters in the hollow of his hand? Measured heaven with a span, and calculated the dust of the earth in a measure. Weighed the mountains and scales and the hills in a balance. Who has directed the Spirit of the Lord? or as his counselor has taught him. You see here, God is creating. God is speaking things into existence. Before we move on from verse two, I just wanna take you into the New Testament briefly to talk to you about some things that were said in the New Testament pointing back to what happened here during the, the creative process. John 17, Jesus was praying what we call his high priestly prayer. John 17, five. And now, O Father, glorify me together with yourself, listen, with the glory which I had with you before the world was. Now haven't we already seen clearly uh, God, and now here in verse two, his spirit. So you've seen God the Father, God the Holy Spirit, and Jesus is here speaking backwards, saying, the glory which I had with you before the world was. So again, validating the term Elohim, the three-person nature of God. 
And then a little later in John 17, 24, Jesus again refers to this, where he says, Father, I desire that they also whom you gave me may be with me where I am, that they may behold my glory which you have given me, for you loved me before the foundation of the world. So Jesus saying there, before the foundation of the world, I as a part of the Godhead was loved, and I as a part of the Godhead was with him, and I had glory that God, my Father, had given me before the foundation of the world. Elohim. 1 Corinthians 2, 7. But we speak the wisdom of God in a mystery, the hidden wisdom which God ordained before the ages for our glory. So God had determined before creation to create wisdom that we would now understand as we read the scriptures and that we would use that wisdom to come to the right conclusions about who God is. Paul later writing to his young protege Timothy in 2 Timothy 1.9 said, and I'm just reading this, this one verse, who has saved us and called us with a holy calling, not according to our works, but according to his own purpose and grace, listen, which was given to us in Christ Jesus before time began. So Paul's now integrating the two things. He's saying the things that we have, the blessings that God has given to us, the salvation that God has given to us through his son, Jesus Christ, he gave it to us in Christ Jesus before time began. So again, Jesus there at the outset of creation, there in the first verses of Genesis. And then finally here in Ephesians chapter 1, one of the most classic verses. Just as he, that is God, chose us in him, that is in Christ, before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and without blame before him in love. So the New Testament, in just a few verses, and there's many more, looking back to the very beginning of creation. And then eternal life was promised to all men who would, who would receive it. Back in Titus chapter 1, verse 2, it says, In hope of eternal life, which God, who cannot lie, promised before time began. So Paul, by the Holy Spirit, writing down these words that God the Spirit is speaking to him, now saying, God promised these things before time began. Before anything was ever written down, it was in the heart of God that man should be redeemed. So that tells us that God knew what was going to happen. He knew as he created man in his image, and he knew as we came into the world uh, through the, the persons of Adam and Eve that we were going to mess it up, that we would mar the creation, that we would sin, and that we would fall from grace and fall from the glory of God before time began. So here's an important thing for us to understand as we, uh, again, be begin this study in the book of Genesis. Here's the question, how then did Moses' hearers, the ones for whom Moses penned Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, etc., how did Moses' hearers understand the days of creation as he read them the account? Certainly they did not understand it as a myth. It was a polemic against the pagan mythologies of the surrounding nations. 
Each day of creation attacks one of the gods in the pagan pantheons of the day and declares that they are not gods of all. At all, excuse me. On day one, the gods of light and darkness are dismissed. On day two, the gods of sky and sea. On day three, the earth gods, the gods of vegetation. On day four, the sun, moon, and star gods. Days five and six dispense with the ideas of divinity within the animal kingdom. Finally, it is made clear that humans and humanity are not divine, while also teaching that all, from the greatest to the least, are made in the image of God. Thus, biblical reality replaced the myths. Neither did Moses' hearers regard the days as metaphorical or literary. The Hebrew tense used here is the wayakwal, that of narrative history. Why is that important? Because now keep in mind as Moses is writing, and he's likely writing during the Exodus as they're out, and God is calling Moses in to meet with him in the tent of meeting. Many believe that that's the general time period, <clears throat> excuse me, when Moses received this revelation from God. But what had happened? What happened in Moses' life? As we go back and read it, we understand that Moses was the one whom God had raised up to lead the nation of Israel out of the bondage of the Egyptians. And if you've ever read that and you uh, know that as Moses uh, was used by God to bring 10 plagues on the land of Egypt, that each of those 10 plagues was a plague against the gods, the false gods that the Egyptians worshiped. So it would follow with that understanding that as Moses is writing these things here, as he's writing about the beginning of creation, that God is giving to this to him in such a way that these the way that he's saying that creation happened is directly refuting and standing in the face of their view of a polytheistic culture which deified everything. And we see this from the beginning of creation almost as man has come into existence and man's understanding of God became perverted and misdirected that people all throughout history have made gods of everything, of, of frogs, of flowers, of the sun, of the moon, of the stars. We've deified everything. And Paul spoke to this issue in Romans chapter one where he said, we've become so deceived that we worship creation and not the creator. And so Moses here writing to refute these false gods and he does it in such a way that it is masterful that he takes it apart and there's no way that they could come to the conclusion based on what he wrote here in Genesis 1, that these gods even exist. So we want to take a look here for a moment at the six days of creation. And if you've never noticed this before, we'll point it out this morning, the first three days describe the forming of creation, and then the next three days describe the filling or the fullness that God pours into creation. Uh, he speaks on day one, and we're going, going to again, uh, get just through day one, two, and three. But he, he creates the, lightness, the light and the dark. And on day four, he comes back and he creates the lights of day and night, which is the sun and the moon. So that's something interesting to understand here, that day one, day two, and day three, the only light is God himself. 
in case you've never noticed that. So he creates light and dark on day one. On day two, he creates the sky and the waters below. And on day three, the land and the plants, the fertility of the earth. But then he circles back on day four and he creates the sun and moon as we know them. On day five, counter to day two, he creates the creatures of the water and the air. So you can see God creates the place and then he fills it. So he created light and darkness. And again, just think about that. There was light and dark by the very presence of God before the sun and the moon were created, which he didn't do until day four. He created the sky and the waters, but then later he filled it with the creatures of the water and the air. On day three, he created the earth itself, the land and the plants, and he populated the earth with vegetation. Then later on day six, he created the animals and man and made it so that the animals and man could use those plants that he created on day three for food. So it's a fascinating thing just to break it down like this and understand it and think about it in terms of how God did this creative effort. And then God said in verse three, let there be light. And it's interesting as we think about this, it would be uh, rendered more literally, light be, light was. And this speaks to again, God said, verse three, then God said, let there be light, and there was light. Now something to point out for all of us to understand this morning, that God's tool, if you will, his tool in creation was his word. Think about that as we think about what we're able to create. Can you and I speak anything into existence? The answer is absolutely, uh, positively, no, we cannot. There are some who mistakenly think in certain segments of uh, extreme Pentecostalism that our words have such power that if we say them in a certain way that we can create or uh, they, the, the, the erroneous doctrine is called positive confession and they walk around super, superstitiously uh, only speaking positive things. But I want you to understand something, that's not true because only God has creative power to speak things into existence. Mankind does not have that ability. So God's tool in creation was his word, it was his speech, and that is all he had. But more importantly, that is all that he needed. Spurgeon said, I must have you notice that this light came instantaneously. The Hebrew suggests this far better than our translation. It is sublimely brief, light be, light was. The first three days, light shone from a source other than the sun. Thus we observe that the Bible begins with light but no sun and ends the same way in Revelation 22, and night will be no more. And they will need no light of lamp or sun for the Lord God will be their light and they will reign forever and ever. John Calvin said of this passage, therefore the Lord by the very order of creation bears witness that he holds in his hands the light, which he is able to impart to us without the sun and the moon. The rhythm of evening beginning the day in Jewish reckoning begins here because the darkness over the face of the earth was followed by the first light for the first day. So when God spoke the world into existence, we just saw previously 
that there was darkness. And so the Jews reckon days because of this, the way that creation is laid out from evening and then morning. And so uh, when we get to uh, Jewish passages of Scripture, even in the New Testament, we need to understand that the days are accounted from roughly, from, from our understanding, from, from about 6 p.m. in the evening till 6 p.m. the next day. That's how they reckon or count a day. Now, we generally look at it from sunrise to sunrise, but of course our clocks and our calendars work on from midnight to midnight. But in the creative effort, there was darkness and then there was light, and so they reckoned the days from darkness to light. And God saw the light, verse 4, that it was good. And God divided the light from darkness. This is not a picture, by the way, of the alleged Big Bang. This is a picture of light emanating from all points, going out to all points in the universe. God called the light day, and the darkness he called night. So the evening and the morning were the first day. The naming that took place of the day and the night on the the first day and the, the sky on day two was understood in biblical culture to be an act of sovereign dominion. Here the naming dismisses the pagan god of sky and sea without a word. Remember from the New Testament that Jesus Christ is the light. And because the Bible begins and ends by describing an untainted world that is filled with light but no sun, and shows God as the source of light, it was fitting that Jesus called himself the light, saying, I am the light of the world. And he would continue by saying, whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life, John 8, verse 12. This was an audacious claim, because as Jesus spoke these words there in John 8, he was standing in the temple treasury by the massive extinguished torches that had burned that very night in the ceremony of the illumination of the temple, which celebrated the Shekinah glory that led Israel for 40 years in the wilderness. It was a solemn declaration of the divinity of Jesus as the light of the world. This divine light declaration ultimately identified him with the giver of light in Genesis 1. And if you remember Jesus, several times in his ministry, he referred to himself as I am. And whenever Jesus did that, he of course identified himself with the God who identified himself to Moses in Genesis, excuse me, in Exodus chapter 3. There at the burning bush, you may remember the incident where this bush began to burn but not be consumed and Moses saw it as he was out on the backside of the desert attending the flocks. And as he saw this, he became intrigued and he came near and God spoke to him from the bush and, take off, and said, take off your sandals for the ground on which you walk is holy. And everyone understood that in that time and in that culture as the very interaction between God and man, between God and Moses. And when Moses at the end of that interaction said, who shall I say sent me? He said, tell them I am sent you. And that refers to the eternally existent one, the one who existed before Genesis 
And that's how Moses understood it. And that's how the, the Jewish people understood it. And on that, those days when Jesus spoke those words and said, I am, they wanted to stone him because they said, you being a man, make yourself out to be God. And here Jesus, on this day in John chapter 8, they had just had this incredible ceremony to celebrate the Shekinah glory and to remember and recall that God had led them in the wilderness and now Jesus is saying there in that context, I am the light of the world. What an amazing picture for us to understand. In 2 Corinthians chapter 4, Paul said, but even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing, whose minds the God of this age has blinded, who do not believe, lest the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God, should shine on them. Now understanding here, I think what Paul is saying is that when people come to that point of believing in Christ, there is light involved. Because a person who does not know Jesus Christ lives in darkness. Their minds are darkened, their, their understanding is darkened, they are lost and without hope. But what brings hope is the light of the truth of who Jesus is. And Paul is referring to that here, that it is the light of the gospel, of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God, and that his light should shine on them. And then Paul went on to say, 2 Corinthians 4, 5, For we do not preach ourselves, but Christ Jesus the Lord, and ourselves your bondservants for Jesus' sake. For it is the God who commanded light to shine out of darkness, who has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. What is he saying? The Holy Spirit is using this light this understanding, this enlightening, this spiritual enlightening to shine on the person of Jesus Christ and reveal to us who Jesus is. And thus God the Holy Spirit brings salvation to a person's heart and soul and mind when the light of God shines upon them. In 1 Corinthians Chapter 8, verses 5 and 6. For even if there are so-called gods, whether in heaven or on earth, as indeed there are many gods and many lords, yet for us there is but one God, the Father, from whom are all things, and we exist for him, and one Lord Jesus Christ, by whom, listen, by whom are all things, and we exist through him. Now Paul says in the book of Colossians chapter one that Jesus was the agent of creation and that all things were created through him. And here he says, we exist through Jesus. So if Jesus was there at creation and Jesus was the agent of creation and all things were created through him and John says in John chapter one, there was not anything made that was made uh, but that it was made through Christ. And now it says uh, that we uh, were born in him, that our identity exists in Christ, by whom all things are, and we exist through him. Do you understand that our life as believers in Christ comes through the all-creating one, and his name is Jesus? Fast-forwarding all the way to the end, Revelation chapter 4, verse 11 
This is a passage that we had studied a number of months ago now. And Revelation 4 and 5 is showing to us a picture of what worship is like in heaven. And in Revelation 4, 11, we find this being cried out before the throne of God. And it says, Worthy are you, our Lord and our God, to receive glory and honor and power. Listen, for you created all things. And because of your will, they existed and were created. This is day one. Now we come to day two, and then we come to day three. Here's the second day, verse six. Then God said, let there be a firmament in the midst of the waters. Let there be a firmament in the midst of the waters and let it divide the waters from the waters. The word firmament means expanse or space. So there was a division uh, in the midst of the waters, meaning from the surface of the earth up to the heavens. Then God said, let there, excuse me, thus God made the firmament and divided the waters which were under the firmament from the waters which were above the firmament. And it was so. So think about this, as God is speaking into creation, the earth, he says now, uh, just using his mouth, his, his words, God said, let there be a firmament, let there be a space between the face of the earth and the atmosphere. Now something I want you to see here, I got this off of NASA's website, just to sort of help us understand what God did when he created the firmament I know it's a little bit hard to see, but I, uh, this, this is the slide that I got. Uh, going all the way down to the bottom, there's a line that says zero. So that would be ground level on the face of planet Earth. And as you walk up the side, you see the troposphere, the stratosphere, the mesosphere, the thermosphere, and the exosphere. And then in between, there's this thing called the ionosphere, which we'll talk about in a moment. But just to give you an under, a bit of an understanding of what God did when he created this firmament and he divided the waters on the sea from the waters that were in the atmosphere. The troposphere starts at the Earth's surface and extends 8 to 14 kilometers or 5 to 9 miles from the face of the Earth up. And this is the part of the atmosphere which is the most dense and everything that we know and understand as weather happens in the troposphere, so that orange band across the bottom of the screen. Now keep in mind if, if you've ever flown on a plane commercially, you know that planes typically fly somewhere in the neighborhood of 30,000 feet. 30,000 feet would be about five to seven miles from the, the, the face of the earth. And again, the troposphere, that first layer which we live in, uh, is between five and nine miles high. So planes fly roughly five miles high, and so they're, they're well below the upper limit of the troposphere. Next is the stratosphere that starts just above the troposphere and extends up to 31 miles. This is the ozone layer which absorbs and scatters the solar ultraviolet radiation. The next layer, the mesosphere, extends up to 80, excuse me, 53 miles. And this is the layer of the atmosphere that meteors burn up in as they enter our atmosphere. This is where they disintegrate before they get to us. Think about how wonderful it is that God protects us from those things. The next layer, the thermosphere, 
which extends all the way up to 372 miles. This is where auroras occur. So if you've ever heard of you know, the northern lights, if you go to sort of northern climates like Norway and Sweden, this is where those things occur as light enters the atmosphere. Uh, during certain times of the year, you can see these things. And satellites tend to orbit the Earth in that layer of uh, the, uh, the atmosphere, the thermosphere. The ionosphere is an abundant layer of electrons and ionized atoms, and there's a very long des description here, but basically this all deals with, with light and frequencies, and this is part of what makes satellite communications possible for us. And then finally, the exosphere, that very outer layer, the upper limit of our atmosphere for the Earth, it extends from the top of the thermosphere up to 6,200 miles. So when we talk about God creating uh, this outer layer here, the firmament in the midst of the waters, and let it divide the waters from the waters, you can see just by going through the, the layers of the atmosphere that uh, the water we know and the moisture and the humidity and the weather, that all happens down very, very close to the face of the earth, and then the higher you go, the less air, the less oxygen, the less water content that there is, in the universe. And then on the uh, verse 8, and God called the firmament heaven, and so the evening and the morning were the second day. And so what he called the heaven for us would be referred to in, verse, in this second day of creation, sort of our atmosphere, the part that envelops our earth. But then we come to the third day, verse 9, then God said, let the waters under the heavens be gathered together into one place and let the dry land appear and it was so. And God called the dry land earth and the gathering together of the waters he called seas and God saw that it was good. Then God said, let the earth bring forth grass, the herb that yields seed and the fruit tree that yields fruit according to its kind whose seed is in itself on the earth and it was so. And the earth brought forth grass, the herb that yields seed according to its kind, and the tree that yields fruit whose seed is in itself according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. So notice the number of times as we read through this passage, and we're only up to day three, where you see God said, God called, God created, God named something. And then we begin to see here in verse 10 and 12, and God saw that it was good, and God saw that it was good. It's important for us to note that because God is now beginning to call his creation good. Those who propose these days of creation were not literal days, but successive days or successive ages of slow evolutionary development have a real problem here. It's hard to explain how plants and all vegetation could grow and thrive eons before the sun and the moon. No modern evolutionist would argue plant life is older than the sun or the moon, but this is what the Genesis record tells us because you see on day four, he creates the sun and the moon. And by understanding these as literal 24-hour days, which is the way we approach it, it's the way we understand it. It's the simplest and the plainest meaning. Each of those other theories that these days, quote, refer to some other age or eon or some period of time, they have problems with those theories. 
Because if that, that is true, if these days were many, many years, hundreds of years, thousands of years, millions of years, then how could this plant life exist? How could photosynthesis take place without the sun if the sun and the moon had not yet been created? And so the Genesis record keeps us straight. It reminds us who the creator is. And then in verse 13, so the evening and the morning were the third day. And that's all we have time for today. And we're only halfway through. What an amazing thing. And we've just sort of scratched the surface this morning as we've been looking at God the creator. God created. God spoke into existence. God is so amazing. And so this morning as we close, I want to remind you of who God is. He is the one who has spoken us into existence. He is the one who has created us. He is the one who rules and reigns over the affairs of men. Yes, even of the affairs of the things going on in this present day for us. I would say to you today and remind you as you are listening that God is in control. That the things happening with this, this virus and the spread of it, these things do not define us. These things do not own us. We belong to the Lord. And if you trust in the Lord, if you know him as your Savior and your Lord, then you can rest secure in the peace that Jesus brings to our hearts. Jesus is the one who spoke in John chapter 16. He says, in the world you have tribulation, but take courage, I have overcome the world. That word tribulation, tribulum in the Greek, means to drag a, a spiked beam over the, the grain to break off the husk, the hard outer shell, so that you might get to the sweet, edible part. And Jesus says there, in the world you have tribulation, in the world you have difficulties, like a beam being drug over your head, sometimes that's how it feels. He says, but take courage, I have overcome the world. And Jesus said that he came to bring peace to the human heart. And the book of Romans tells us that in God, in Christ, we have peace. And our, the, the need of all of us as men and women is that we would have peace with God. And we can't know the peace of God until we have peace with God. So any of you today who may be listening, who are troubled and you don't have peace, if you trust in the Lord, then he will give you that peace. Seek him, seek him in his word. Pray, cry out, call upon the name of the Lord. And for all of you listening this morning who may not have ever professed faith in Jesus Christ, maybe you've never turned your heart toward him, maybe you've never asked him to come into your life and to forgive your sins, then let today be the day for you when you trust in Jesus. Jesus said, come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, I will give you rest. Your rest and your peace can only come from the Lord Jesus Christ. So let's pray together as we close this morning. May the Lord be with you, may he bless you, and may he keep you in these days ahead. Um, let's stay connected as a community uh, any way we can, voice, text, email, 
and let's stay in contact with one another as the church and let's reach out and love and encourage one another and let's go and let's be the light to the world. Lord Jesus, this morning for any who do not know you or who are unsure, let this be the moment where they turn in their hearts to you and they say, Lord Jesus, would you come into my life? I need your peace. I want you to forgive me of my sin. Lord, draw me close this morning and make me your son or your daughter as I now come and place my faith and my hope in you. And would you just cleanse me and make me new? Begin that journey this morning of drawing near to Jesus. And Lord, for any listening who are troubled, who are weary, who are filled with anxiety, Lord, this morning, may the peace of God, which surpasses understanding, guard their hearts and their minds in Christ Jesus. Lord, we love you, we bless you, we honor you. And as uh, this song plays as we end, may we begin this week by worshiping you and by focusing on who you are. Lord, as so many of us this week are forced to, to work from home or, or that kind of thing, and we find ourselves with lots of extra time, uh, may we not use the TV as our personal babysitter, but may we turn our hearts to your word. May we pick it up and read it and open the pages, Lord, and allow you to show us who you truly are. Bring forth that light and reveal yourself to us. In Jesus' name, all God's people said, amen. The Lord bless you. Thanks for joining us today.